welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Kashyap Patel. He is currently the president of the Community Oncology Alliance, or COA. And he's also a a book author. He wrote a a book on life and death. We'll talk about this. Um, But uh, I really wanted to host Dr. Patel to talk a little bit more about his efforts pertaining to what the Community Oncology Alliance, or COA, is doing. Uh, It is possible that many of you don't know what COA is, who COA is, what does COA do, what is COA trying to accomplish. And for that, I thought the best thing is to bring the president of COA and uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what he is doing and really, um, importantly, where are the opportunities to improve on community oncology. Look, the reality is community oncology has been under a lot of pressure and stress over the past decade not only from a reimbursement perspective, but there's a lot of things that it takes to operate a practice and make sure that the practice is is really able to sustain its operational costs and expenses. And there's a lot of pressure, whether it's from large corporate, whether it's from other uh, larger practices, hospitals trying to acquire these practices. Bottom line is patients tend to benefit best if they have access to care. And if we have practices all over the country then patients are able to access care easier. If the practices are largely consolidated under just large hospitals and large healthcare systems, it goes without saying that the ability to access uh, uh, different care and diversity of care and different practices will become mitigated. So with that, I've invited Dr. Patel to actually talk to us a little bit about what's actually going on and what does uh, COA do and uh, where are the opportunities to mitigate on disparities and improve on access to care. Uh, Before I aired the episode, I taped with uh, Dr. Patel prior to 2022. I would like to plug in the podcast and make sure that you tune into it, watch it on my YouTube YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhanar Healthcare Unfiltered. Check out my website and don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, like, and refer friends or colleagues to the show. And with that, Dr. Patel on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to host Dr. Kashyap Patel. Uh, whom I met for the first time. Uh, well, no, we've met actually a few times before, but I think we spent more time recently when we were both in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, a month or so ago. Um, but I've invited uh, Dr. Patel because I personally, uh, Kashep was really fascinated by your journey as a, as a, as a healthcare uh, physician and administrator, and I'm going to put you in the entrepreneurial category. We'll talk about that. And also how you got involved with COA. We're going to tell listeners about COA, what, what is COA, what they do, and so on. So first of all, thanks so much for taking time of your schedule. I really genuinely appreciate that. I know how busy you are. So let's start by introducing you to listeners and viewers. Um, tell us a little bit about you. 
Sure, Terry. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. I've heard your name, you know, your reputation kind of precedes your name. I think I've heard your name in a very nice and very pristine way. So I always look forward to connecting in person. And of course, you know. These are lies, lies. Don't listen to those. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and then I think it was great that we caught up about three weeks back in DC. But so I'm a practicing oncologist, but I'm a true nomad in this world. I've lived in three different continents, 11 different cities, and, and I've done three residencies, 100 hours each, and never got tired of doing it. So lived in Scotland, England, New York, Philly, Charlotte, everywhere. And then, of course, Mumbai and India. As a part of my journey, I've also been a journalist. I've been a photojournalist. I was a photographer. I did a lot of wildlife photography. And then I was lucky enough to see that wildlife didn't sneak me into their fold. <laughs> uh, and, and, and all along my life, I wanted to be an oncologist. A strange reason. When I was nine years old, I saw a movie where the hero dies of lymphoma. And it kind of inspired me to be an oncologist. And I followed that passion. So following that passion as a human being, I ended up in, in Charlotte area practicing here in, in a small community clinic uh, just outside Charlotte, about 10 miles south of Charlotte in South Carolina. And it gave me a whole different perspective, having lived in like say, three different continents, 11 different cities, met two different people. I realized that human beings are same everywhere and I really enjoy every day of my practice here. So that probably story about me, I married my beautiful wife, 35 years, she's like the rock solid bone behind me. I mean, I could have done nothing without her. She's like an angel. I have a wonderful son, 34 year old. And, and we are lucky enough for him to even continue to live with us in a separate compartment in the house. So we are, we are so blessed to have one family unique in America that kind of ties together like a gel. That's amazing. So uh, Kishyap, um and hopefully I'm, I'm saying your name properly. I'm not completely slaughtering it, right? You can... no, absolutely. That's, okay. You got it quite right. So what, you did medical school in Mumbai? Partly in Mumbai, partly in Ahmedabad. So I've lived in two different cities. And yeah, I did my oncology training in Mumbai, but I, I did my primary residency and med school in, in, in Ahmedabad, which is north of Mumbai, about 300 miles north of Mumbai. And then, and then you came to the U.S. first, or you went to the U, uh, Scotland? I went, I went to the U.K. first. I went to U.K. in 1992, and, and I spent almost four years in Manchester area, northwest part of England, in, in Blackpool. Uh, uh, I was actually in Wigan, Manchester, and then I moved to Scotland as a faculty. I was a junior faculty at the Aberdeen University, and then... Uh, you know, like most of the immigrants who travel outside their home country, they find America as well the most kind of uh, welcoming country. And I was one of the same person. I felt this country had a lot more to offer to immigrants. So I landed in New York only to realize that I had to redo all my training. And, and I did again my residence for two more years and then and went for a fellowship at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia. So you had your residency done already in the UK and yes. then you left the UK, came to the US and did another residency. This was my third residency. I had one residency in India, one in UK, one in US. But I don't think I regretted that because every system has a different different kind of perspective of training and learning. So I really was, was not regretful. I think it was hard work originally, but 
I learned a lot of things in, in different residences. And what got you into um, oncology? Was it just because you saw that, uh, you said that movie, there was an actor or an, had lymphoma, you just was intrigued by the illness or? I was intrigued by, I mean, I was, I was very sad that he died. And, and, you know, I was nine years old back in 1969, 70. And my dad said, you know, don't cry. You know, when you grow up, why don't you become a doctor? And, and oncology was not even a field in India at the time. So I had no idea what I was talking about, but it just stayed with me. And then, you know, my book Between Life and Death that I wrote about a year back, it has actually chapter on that book as on, on, that, on that episode that, you know, when I was nine years old, I saw this movie called Anand. And that, that guy was a very famous actor. And I, I just, it stuck to me and I stayed, stayed with that passion. We're going to get into your book a little bit. I'm very uh, intrigued uh, about and, and to know a little bit what got you to write it and, and what it is about. Um, mm-hmm. so, so then you moved to the U.S., did your fellowship, and then where did you start practicing after fellowship? So the, my first practice itself is the same that I'm with. I, I started practicing just outside Charlotte in, in uh, South Carolina, and, and I joined this practice about 21 years back. And I joined the practice initially and my senior founding partner felt that I had some business acumen as well as some vision to build up to a whole different levels. So from two doctors, we expanded the business to having five doctors and maybe five mid levels. So now I think we are, I think right now we are nine providers in our clinic and I expanded the practice. And then, you know, like anybody else, I, I kept seeing the challenges that that bothered me about the future of the oncology. So I started joining different organizations and continued to do advocacy work. And that's how I ended up in where I'm today. But I've been in the same location for 21 years now. But, but uh, you know, the, your involvement in COA, and we'll talk about COA, was related to your observation of some of the challenges you were facing as a practicing oncologist. Um, what, what are these challenges that led you to join COA, and as you describe this to us, how did you learn about COA and, and what is COA? So that's very interesting uh, topic. It, it probably I can spend hours and days on that, but to summarize what I saw in 2004, five and six, when I was just kind of fresh, a new kid in the block in the area, I could see that the health systems were expanding their footprints across the state lines, across the all the provider landscape. So I remember one of the CEOs at the Tenet Hospital where where the privileges once called me and told me that you better be ready to sell a practice to us, otherwise you'll be forced out of the practice. And I couldn't understand what he meant, but I then started realizing that the large corporations have billions of dollars and in order to perpetuate and, and kind of expand their business plan, they would start buying small practices. And, and of course, you know, we, we know the difference in the site of care costs. So, you know, uh, what we what an insurance company pays us versus what they pay to the health system because of their capacity of negotiating contract. Obviously, we were almost like a threatened species. And and then initially I became a member of our state oncology society, South Carolina State Oncology Society. And I became a board member and slowly started rising the cadres. So back in 2009 and 10, as I learned the business aspect of the oncology, I learned that it's important to be part of the fold. Otherwise, you probably could be vulnerable to be 
kind of a victim. So uh, I started learning about that. And I'm also, you know, like your channel, I'm an unfiltered. So I, I would be very outspoken critic of those capitalist interests. And and in one of the meetings in Charlotte, when COA and I think Ion were jointly hosting what they call Community Counts uh, lecture, I spoke about the challenges that we faced. And I said, you know, we need to figure out a way to survive. And that's when COA spotted me as one of the outspoken, unfiltered person uh, who actually was patient's advocate in the first instance was advocating for survival of independent practices and also to ensure that the healthcare policy did not uh, compromise either patients kind of uh, access to care or the physicians access to running their own small businesses. So that's how I became part of the COA. And initially they invited me to join the board and then slowly and steadily they said, you know, you should look into taking leadership position. And, and, and with my, I would say, you know, I had a business acumen. So uh, when I started learning about the alternate payment model, I started working with my local peers. I actually was jointly involved in designing the Blue Cross Blue Shield South Carolina Oncology Care model along with the team at the BCBS. And so with all of these, uh, these uh, qualities and accomplishments, COA asked me to step up to the leadership plate so that we could create a combined vision between multiple stakeholders and ensure that patients access to care remains as it is. So COA stands for Community Oncology Alliance. Yes. History, I mean, when was, the, when, when was it formed? Um, what is it trying to accomplish? Like what is, what does COA want to see happen? And when was it established? So COA was originally established almost two decades back. And, and, and you know, for those who've got uh, gray hair like me and, and probably have lost an affair and struggled to survive, it came into existence as an effort to get practices ready to work with the policymakers. In 2003, when Bush administration shifted the fee schedule as a part of the Medical Modernization Act uh, from the uh, wholesale acquisition cost basis to average sales price base. You know, there was not a single uh, representative from the oncology community within the policy space. So of course, you know, ASCO has a book, book, big footprint, but I, I don't think anybody took oncology seriously. And the only thing that was being shown was the oncologists with wealth and, you know, trying to make money on the drugs. And of course, you know, there has been kind of challenges with that as well. But in general, most of the oncologists, they want to serve patients. And I think having invested many years working 100 hours a week during residence fellowship, I think it may be appropriate for them to have appropriate fair market value compensation. So to have an appropriate voice within the local and federal government, Community Oncology Alliance came together between the physicians and founding executive director, Ted Oaken, Mary uh, Krasinski, uh, and so many other stakeholders uh, decided to form a small coalition with <clears throat> an idea to let our frustrations 
our concerns be known to the policymakers in the rightful way to ensure, number one, that patients' access to cancer care in regional centers was not compromised. Number two, our voice was heard in the policy space so that any unforeseen consequences could be brought to the knowledge of the policymakers. And the third is that the healthcare system does not become one having consolidation under the big giant uh, umbrellas, where again, it would lead to rising cost of care. It would restrict the access to care. And we are seeing it already now, you know, look at the cancer health disparities. I mean, I think uh, there are two Americas, you know, somebody may have to travel like two and a half miles one way to get access to trials. Why should we have that? So COA's purpose is to work with the policymakers and stakeholders to ensure that access to care is preserved, that physicians' voices are heard, and that policy, whether you look at the government policy, fee schedule, Medicare, or commercial interests, or even PBMs, they do not impinge on the rights of the physicians to practice medicine and they don't, come, they don't come in between the patient and doctors. So any community oncology practice could be part of COA? Absolutely. Any community oncology practice could be part of COA. Anybody could be part of the COA. Okay. And, and there's, I, 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 don't know, I presume there's an actual fee that practices have to pay COA to be able to have the operations or? We do actually recommend, I think it's, it's not a must, but we all voluntarily contribute because we have a staff that we have to support. So we 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 recommend paying like I think about two thousand dollars per provider per year, but not everybody pays that, and it's it's okay. I mean, what we try to do is to encourage that this is almost like uh, the the. Uh, the like-minded people coming together into one umbrella. So if somebody can become a member of the co-even without paying fees, but we do recommend that they should become, they should keep paying. We, we send them invoices if they can't pay for, and the reason we don't throw them out. And then and then the money that gets collected by COA from membership is used to try to influence, I guess, policymakers to protect or the community oncology and the way it serves patients. Is, is that a fair description? Well, that's a fair description. I think we have, I think full-time, 17 or 18 full-time staff members. We have some of the other expenses, you know, traveling expenses. So we, for, for example, most of the board members spend their own money in spite of even paying the membership fees when I go to DC. I, I spend my own flight money because I believe that I, I, I want to, protect the association to ensure that we don't enter financial constraints. So, so it, it, the money goes essentially to uh, help policymakers understand the impact of that. We have a separate pack, which is a whole two separate kind of, uh, so COA directly does not uh, influence policymakers by giving them funding. I think there's a separate pack which decides the political action committee and the political funding. But as far as the day-to-day -day work is concerned, I go and talk to my congressman in DC to help him understand the, the policies changes and how it could impact access to care. So we try to use the local networking between the state 
and the federal uh, legislators to hear our voice. And when multiple stakeholders from different states go to the respective congressmen and senators, we create that movement or fervor that any ill-thought policy could impact the cancer care delivery in the country. So let, let's then just, I know you mentioned that before, but I, I, I want to try to structure it a little bit better for listeners. So um, can we talk about, in your opinion, the top five issues or, mm-hmm. or um, problems maybe facing community oncology and what is COA doing about these five problems? Maybe we'll start with problem one. What do you think the biggest problem that is facing the community oncology practices in the United States of America today? Number one. Consolidation and vertical integration by the large health systems. So large health systems have billions of dollars. And then I've personally seen that a chairman of the program can walk into our doors and say, well, we have hundreds of millions of dollars and we can nuke small practices. They have the nerve to talk to the hospital board and say, if this practice does not uh, join us, we can destroy them. That's the number one threat that we have. So, and- so let's talk about that. Why, why would large corporate want to acquire small practices and how can small practices say no if they are struggling to stay afloat? And are they struggling to stay afloat? Like, is a smaller practice, is it that the profit margin is narrower? Correct. So, so you actually hit the nail on the right spot, Cherry. So what happens is the difference in the fee schedule between the large health system and the small practices gives them the monetary benefit. So, for example, if my practice simply changes the tax ID of a large health system across a state line, the pair will end up in paying three to four times. What I don't understand in this country, Chaddy, is that if, if you went to Walmart and today and bought something, and if the Walmart changes their name to Tiffany's tomorrow, the same thing should not cost four times. It's a commodity. So the problem in the health system right now that we are trying and struggling to face is if we are a less expensive side of care, why should the uh, policy uh, allow this sort of consolidation? Fortunately, in our area, Department of Justice and FTC looked into the practices by this big health system and they filed an antitrust lawsuit against them to about the policy. What they also do, they will actually buy all the surgeons. They will buy all the primary care. So even if I refuse to sell, then I'll be forced not to have patients because they probably will control the patient front. That is exactly how the DOJ and FTC looked into the uh, practice of, uh, you know, referring patients within the internal network, narrow networks. But, but maybe, maybe, like if you have a large corporate that's buying a small practice, maybe this helps the practice get more resources. So as a small practice, you may not have access to, I don't know, a PET scanner or, or CAT scans or radiation oncology or dispensing pharmacy. And by having these additional consolidation, it may allow you to have 
more resources to serve patients. Is, is that, is that uh, a reasonable counter argument? That's not at all because we have our own CAT scan machine. <laughs> <laughs> we have access to CAT scan. I mean, maybe not. I mean, I guess I'm trying to think is there a benefit for a small practice to be part of a larger practice uh, if you're getting more resources? Maybe you get drugs cheaper. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what's the. Yeah, that, that's a good argument. But I think at the end of the day, you know, when you look at who ends up in paying, Consumer. So about 20% patients in our area do not have Medigap insurance. So if my practice was absorbed by a large health system, the out-of-pocket cost will rise three times. And some of my patients who barely make $1,200 a month who don't have Medigap insurance, they let their care go away. So we've seen that with escalation of the out-of-pocket cost, patients tend to drop their care. So I would rather be happy making less money than to be controlled by health system with increases costs. And with, you know, that's what one of the reasons for disparities is access to care with financial toxicities. And I would rather see that patients leave than to be, become the victim of the consolidation. That's number one problem. This, I think you outlined, it's really the acquisition. Acquisition. Of, uh, acquisition. Number two? PBMs, PBMs, PBMs. So with the shift into the oncolytics, into oral space, uh, most of the practices have started dispensing drugs because it's easier. You can counsel patient. You can start with a split fill. The PBMs come in between the physician and the patient. And frequently, it takes about three to four weeks before patients can have their hands on the medicines. So the policies that PBMs have in place, particularly, you know, without manufacturing drugs, simply by their business entity, if they can make profit between 20 to 47%, which is what studies have shown, patients end up in pain. The second thing is, Patients do not have access to multiple foundations. So if, a, if I hand over a prescription to an expensive oral oncolytic drug, if their out-of-pocket cost is $2,000, they let that go. They say, I, I don't want to take the medicine. I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. As against that, I have three full-time employees. So I just got my numbers today from my business office. We raised about $1.9 million of direct and indirect assistance to make sure that patient's access to drug was maintained. I don't think anybody in that uh, large behemoth system would be keen to do that. That's not their business strategy. So, so the PBMs and the access to appropriate oral oncology is another problem that we face virtually every other day. So let's talk, before we go to problem three, um, what did COA do or try to do about the first problem, which is the acquisition and consolidation, mm -hmm. and about mm -hmm. a, a second problem, um, I realize sometimes you may there may not be immediate solutions, and it's just work in progress. But I'm just curious, I guess, into how an organization like COA tackles these problems, and what has what did COA try to do or has been able to do. So COA works with the policymakers to find a solution to provide better access to care. And coming back to your first point is that 
I don't do bone marrow transplant. I don't treat acute leukemic. So I always look forward to those big system that are multiple resources. So I, I do like their existence to ensure the things I can do, I want them to do. But as far as the practice survival is concerned, COA has been working with the CMMI to facilitate development of the alternate payment model where the physicians are encouraged to ensure the sustenance of the quality of care, but saving the money. So for example, you know, one of the things that we work with CMMI is to uh, reduce the hospitalization, reduce the total cost of care uh, while maintaining the same outcome. And, 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 and the first version was the oncologic care model. The second version will come down the road. So we are actually working with stakeholders to help facilitate development of the advanced alternate payment model. So that is one thing we are doing. We are also triggering studies to look at difference in the site of care analysis. And this data would help us to go back to the payer for asking for a better contract so that we can have a sustenance uh, that's easier. So the third thing is on a regular basis, uh, we go to our lawmakers to help them understand again why it is important to maintain independent practices. Back in 2004 and 5, 85% of the care was delivered by independent practices. Come 2021, it's less than 55%. So there's been 30% practice that have vanished, which has led to difficulty in access to care. There are parts in our state where there's no oncologist. Somebody would have to travel about 60, 70, 80 miles one way. When you look into Montana, Iowa, there are no small practices. It's all because they were either absorbed or they become extinct because of the survival struggle. That is actually a pretty staggering statistic from 85% to 55%. Yes, sir. So, so, so I guess, Kishap, when, they, when a practice is acquired, mm-hmm. it, it can still be in this, it stays in the same location it was serving, it just have a different governance structure from the hospital or the acquirer. And, and so what ends up in happening is, you know, most of the people who are senior, this, they end up in living because, you know, you work under one structure and then, then when somebody comes and says, you can't do it, you have to see like patients every 10 minutes because they, 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 they crunch numbers. I mean, they, they don't worry about the relationship between physician and a patient. So for example, there's a town called Gastonia, which is just about uh, 15 miles north of where we are. And the practice was acquired by a large health system, and every senior physician left within a year. And it, it's mainly because the 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 I guess the larger healthcare system is dictatorial, right? And it's more interested in the numbers. So yeah, yeah. To... yeah, there's no soul to that. They 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 worry more about crunching the numbers that you have to see so many patients, and then then the you know, after two, three years, when the contract comes up for renewal, I've talked to so many of my colleagues. They regret, but I mean, sometimes they don't have a choice because they bought a house there, they have a family there, they are in no compete clause. So, so then what? I mean, I mean, nobody is forcing practices to to sell. Uh, they must be selling because they are either seeing it as a lucrative opportunity in the initial contract, although they obviously you can never you can never guarantee the renewal of the contract or because they're really stressed. Like, you know, you will never sell your practice unless you're really stressed financially and you have no way out. You just have to be bought out or, you, or you're going to be, 
go under, I mean, financially. So I think it's the, the, the problem why they end up in selling is if you're somewhat slightly gullible and weaker, and if your reference base has been taken away, so they are forced to sell. They are not actually willing to sell. I don't recall a single colleague of mine who sold practice because they saw better money on the other side of better quality of life. They were forced. Mm-hmm. And this is this reason why the DOJ filed an antitrust lawsuit against the large health system because they felt that the, the policies implemented by the large health systems were not in compliance with FTC and they saw that as a violation of antitrust lawsuits. So obviously it's not that they want to sell, it's because either they, they can't survive because of their referral basis taken away. So what happened with that now, This uh, the FTC lawsuit? Well, the, the system has been warned not to do anything further. So I think they've been on a kind of hold. Okay. So so your position at COA now, you're the president or you're like on the board or what's what's your actual title at COA? I'm the president. Uh, I'm, I'm, so I'm, talking to the pre- I'm talking to the president himself. <laughs> Right? I'm, I'm <laughs> yes, I'm the president of the COA right now. <laughs> and how long is that term? It's actually two-year term, so this is my second year. Okay. So as the president, do you come in and you have like a particular strategy or a particular agenda that you would like to, um, to accomplish during your two-year term as a president? Absolutely. And I think our interests are very well aligned here because number one, priority I have is to look at the cancer health disparities. Uh, and then we got to know about the depth and the breadth of that last year when the ASCR report came out, which is quite damning for the health system. And the second priority is to promote the advanced alternate payment model, get a better relationship with CMS, CMMI, to help them understand the value of community oncology, the the difference in the site of care cost analysis, and the you know how the access to care is maintained because of the community oncology practices presence in the small to medium sized communities across the country. And so my my two priorities stop is maintain the access to care for all, irrespective of who they are, what they look like, how much they make or how they speak, the literacy level. And second is make the health system affordable and cost-effective. And uh, so, uh, so Kishap, is this, uh, do you put your practice on hold? Uh, seems like that's a lot of work. So you cut your practice hours and you're doing this or you? I've done that. So I've actually cut my practice hours to now just two and a half days a week. And before COVID hit, even as a vice president of the COA, I used to fly to DC virtually every other week, if not every week sometimes. And and that's simply because we get together, we have an office in DC, and our our theme is that the more visible we are within the powers to be, the more uh, kind of, you know, uh, knowledge base that we bring to the lawmakers about the implications of ill thought policies, the higher is a chance that we can continue to provide the care in unfettered way. So if you go back to five years, over the past five years, I'd like mm-hmm. to 
I would like to highlight to listeners maybe some of the accomplishments that COA have been able to achieve and, and land over the past five years. Like if you, if you want to tell somebody who has never heard of COA, um, what would you say the top few accomplishments over the past five years? So number one accomplishment that we did was to support and promote the advanced alternate payment model, which is the oncology care model, to work with the federal government, CMS, CMMI, and, and, and that's one thing that we've achieved. Number two, what we've achieved is reduce the risk of consolidation. So there's a program called 340B. So 340B program allowed the large not-for-profit institutions to get drugs at a substantially low price and get paid at par with the practices. That was a big incentive for them to buy the practices so that it would end up increasing the profit line. And we work with CMS to understand the consequences of the 340B. So CMS cut down the reimbursement to the point where now there's not a lot of meat left for lack of better words for the 340B institutions to keep buying practices. Of course, they still do it on the commercial side. So that's one second thing we've achieved. Third is, you know, making the lawmakers aware about the issues with the PBM. So we are trying to promote the transparency bill. There's one bill that actually bipartisan uh, pending in the Congress right now, Terry Sewell, Congressman Terry Sewell and Bill Rackus, they're trying to pass Timely Access to Cancer Treatment Act of 2021, where if a PBM cannot provide treatment within 72 hours, it could be dispensed by the practices. So we've had our hand in multiple legislations that actually you know, reduces the impediment to the access to the care. So it, did you tell us about the, was the book that you wrote related to COA and to what you're trying to do? Or is it completely different? The book is completely different. So I, I have a different perspective of on the life and death. And what I saw when I came here to practice oncology is that neither me nor my patients have a very clear understanding about process of death and dying. And it always was a challenge to talk about death and dying. So I started maintaining the decent records of my conversations with patients. And I, I started learning about perception of death between different faiths. And, and, and I actually tried to attend most of my patients when they were physically leaving this world. So I would be there when they're dying, actually. And it gave me different perspective. But then I saw that if I could share that perspective of the transition between the physical body and wherever we're heading afterwards, it may help some of other people, the audience who want to read about it. So I created a narrative nonfiction account of my patients in a conversational form with another patient who actually passed away, almost like Tuesdays with Maury, where my conversation with my patient would enable others to understand the, the journey between life and death and then what happens and how we can make death not as a gloomy event, but how we could make it more as a celebratory event where we would prepare departure. You know, we, 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 we do what we call the baby showers before somebody is born. We don't know where they're coming from. So why can't we celebrate the departure where we know that we're heading somewhere else that we don't know? 
Wow, that's pretty deep. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know how you could celebrate death, but um, that's interesting. You got me intrigued about the book. I, I uh, would be interesting to see what what others say. I do. I think it's a cultural thing. I think maybe some cultures absolutely celebrate, but I think it's it's difficult to. I believe for most people losing someone a loved one close to the person and realizing you're never going to see them again is 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 difficult to be a a celebratory event <laughs> but i would i would call it celebration of their life not the celebration of death yeah so uh, yeah yeah you know one thing is certain that both of us will be dead it's not when it's not if it's when so do I worry about when it's going to come or do I celebrate every moment I have so that when, when that moment comes, there's no regret that I did not live my life to the fullest. Yeah, that is very, very intriguing and interesting. So anything else we should talk about COA and what you're doing with COA that would be of interest to listeners, you think? Koa has been right now very deeply entrenched into looking at the cancer health disparities. You know, after the ACI report that came out where we show that 34% of the deaths are preventable, one in three deaths is preventable from cancer. And we spent almost about $230 billion more between 2003 and 2006 because of disparities. So Koa's topmost priority is how to actually translate the debate into action. So there's a lot of debates going on about disparities, what causes it. But COA is one body that is physically putting measures in place to the practices by different concepts. And we'll have some probably posters or even papers coming out in the next six months to a year as to what are the operational successes that COA has achieved in partnership with member practices to address disparities, if not all some of them. So COA is a body that actually believes more in operations and actions, less talk, more actions. Well, I would really look forward to reading these papers, Keshap. I think this is really uh, interesting. It's, it's a, it's a well-intended um, goal and mission. It's pretty tough to, um, to, to accomplish. There are so many... Um, variabilities involved, but I think, you know, focusing on a couple of tangible measures that you could actually accomplish would be a key for success. Absolutely. And I think coming back to last topic of precision medicine, because I can't not talk about that. I think what, what I feel if, if we had a future projections, I think what COA is trying to do is to again, create some sort of precision medicine specific initiatives where you know, we know that the biomarker testing rate is way too low, probably between 25 to 40%, depending on what region you take. So we're trying to bring initiatives between education resources to increase the appropriate NGS testing, somatic mutation, genomic profiling, whatever technique that you want to use so that every patient has access to appropriate testing, targeted therapies if they kind of meet criteria, and a better outcome. So end of the day, COA's effort has been to bring in the technology of tomorrow to patients now and, and do everything possible to break the bureaucratic or dictatorial hurdles that comes in between patients and doctors. 
Hey, well, really good luck. I mean, I think that this is this would be great. I, I look forward to learning more about your accomplishments in the in the years to come, and 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 uh, then after that, you you stay involved in COA, but not in the capacity as president, correct? I have to be on board for two more years as you know, uh, ex president, as a kind of you know immediate past president, and then there are other avenues. I think I'm I'm looking into starting something called National Coalition on Cancellation Disparities. A body that's kind of that's above and beyond all of us because you know again the movement has to continue on disparities uh, it, it could be past our lifetime as well so whatever i, I want to do i want to make it more like a sustainable uh, legacy rather than something that's kind of transactional yeah i really appreciate your time uh, uh Keshep. this was great i hope listeners understood a little bit more about you the person and and also about koa and and, and what koa is doing with trying to accomplish i presume they can check it out on the koa website and and there's probably lots of information there to look at absolutely and maybe in future we'll talk about disparities i think that's another big topic i really want to be unfiltered uncensored there hey anytime i uh, you could, you, could uh, you know i think i think it's 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 a very difficult topic because there's so many elements that involved to be able to resolve the issue like we know disparities exist in the us and outside the us right there are disparities yeah. between people who are in chicago and people who are in nigeria in terms of mm-hmm. you know so i think it becomes you know how to mitigate that it's going to be a very slow progress but there are lots of opportunities that we can work together to make it better i think we'll work together on that chat all right my friend thank all you right. so much thank you all for listening to the show and for supporting the show i appreciate you i'd like to know from you where the opportunities to improve on the show you can do that by sending me a direct message on twitter at chadi nabhan by emailing me through my website www.chadinabhan.com uh, please watch all of these interviews on youtube subscribe like review and refer friends or colleagues and before i let you go i'm going to leave you with the saying from Socrates and Socrates said I know uh, that I am intelligent because I know that I know nothing there you have it until next time